For a status, I am Malihe Razazan. Last October, protests erupted in Morocco's Reef region after a fish vendor named Moshin Fikri was crushed to death by a garbage truck compactor as he tried to retrieve fish the police had taken from him, claiming it was caught illegally. The protests have continued through 2017 and have taken up many of the same demands made during the February 20th movement of 2011, the large-scale protest movement during the Arab uprising. Anthropologist Maryam Aurak has called the recent protest as the quote unfinished business of Moroccan Arab Spring activists. And some on social media have been calling the latest wave of widespread demonstrations the quote new February 20th, referring to the movement of 2011. Khalil Bendib spoke with Professor Aurak about the legacy of resistance in Morocco and specifically in the Rif region, the epicenter of the recent protests. Mariam, I'm from Algeria, mm-hmm. and I grew up there, and Algerians' perception of the Rif Mountains is one of greater kinship even than with the rest of Morocco, politically speaking. Mm. There's a proud history of armed resistance against colonialism, both Spanish and French colonialism in the Reef Mountains. Mm. Abdelkrim Khattabi especially stands out as a great hero of that resistance. Will you tell us briefly about this history of anti-colonial resistance, why it sprang up in the Reef instead of the rest of Morocco, and what relevance does it have in today's Morocco, if any? Yeah, it's really great to hear about the historical connections also between uh, the different North African countries, because I think that is one of the many, I think, very interesting uh, archives and uh, oral histories that have been, that have lost and that have not been properly treated uh, as part of our uh, history. So I think it's really interesting that you ask that, particularly in terms of how the resistance movements in Algeria and uh, in Morocco often you would exchange help and expertise and even literally go over the borders to join the different movements. I think it's beautiful and I I hope this will come back um, and we know why it doesn't because as we probably will discuss later on, one of the ways of course to delegitimize the uh, very important uh, movements erupting now is to create this kind of suspicion that they are being sort of doing the dirty work for Algeria. So there's this agenda also in the sort of mainstream and hegemonic Moroccan reference to the political uprisings in relation to Algeria. So that's really an interesting reminder of why the very interesting part of our history where we have a proud legacy of anti-colonial resistance, which was intimately connected, I think, with the incredible history of Algeria uh, is lost. Um, But it's not just lost in terms of what we know of the collaborations between Algerian and Moroccan anti-colonial fighters and movement. It's also lost in terms of what Moroccans know about their own anti-colonial history. So what we see now is that the people from the north are kind of bringing bit by bit 
this history back into the public discourse. So literally, they bring it back by carrying posters and banners with Abdul Karim al-Khattabi, who was one of the most iconic figures of this anti-colonial uh, struggle, which actually inspired... You know, it wasn't just a Moroccan. I think it's also important. It wasn't just a Moroccan experience, right? I mean, yes, yes. I meet people in the Middle East when I do my field work in Palestine or in Lebanon who ask me where I'm from, and then I tell them, and then I say, I'm Azir, and then I, and then I ask, you know, Adil Kim Khattabi, and most of the political people, activists, better know Adil Kim Khattabi. So his experience had reached very wide and had really inspired, I think, a lot of anti-colonial movements. And why was that? I think it was partly because it was one of the early ones. I've tried to look into this very quickly, and then I found that actually... After the Russian Revolution, the Moroccan, North Moroccan experience was the main sort of revolutionary experience, and at the same time, the Mexican Revolution in 2021 as well. So we're talking about a very early experience as well in the kind of international or global history of revolutions and anti-colonial struggle. So what makes it so interesting for contemporary movements and politics is that a lot of people respond in kind of surprise or a bit puzzled. They can't really connect this very rich and, and incredibly uh, heavy legacy with the Moroccan they know. So there's this black hole. There's this black hole in the consciousness of many, many Moroccan people about their own history. And what the people in the Rif now are basically doing, maybe implicitly, is actually throw that back and you get bits and pieces of what actually happened in the 20s and, and afterwards. So it hasn't disappeared from the memory, obviously, in the Reef Mountains. And for, right. for our listeners who are not uh, familiar with the geography, Morocco is obviously the neighbor to the west, uh, to Algeria. The northern part that we're talking about is the part of Morocco that's facing the Mediterranean as opposed to the mm -hmm. rest. The rest of Morocco is facing the Atlantic. So those mountains are a lot like Algeria. They're facing the, the Mediterranean. They're facing the colonial powers. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're, when you yeah. say the north of the Reef Mountains, yeah. that's the yeah. area we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, the location has probably always played a role in the colonial and later Muslim interest and emphasis in keeping control, right? It's geopolitically, it's if you look at the map, and I don't know, you can provide that for your listeners, but it really is the tip. It's the tip of the continent that basically flows over into Europe. So it's strategically and geopolitically, it's also a very important area, which is why during Spanish and French colonialism, there were a lot of internal struggles between the colonial powers to take control of particular strategic regions. So it's really interesting to think about how Morocco has been basically colonized by different imperial powers. And this has to do with, of course, the very important strategic benefits of the country as a whole, because it's, as you said, it's the 
northwest of it's the most northwest of the continent and it's the most it's closest to Europe in a certain way. And of course of the uh, incredible benefits in having a place country that is linked to two different oceans, the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. So the the people in the reef and I think I don't know if, you, if you've been to uh, Europe uh, or Southern Europe, but when I am in Southern Europe, I don't see that much difference. So when people describe the reef as the mountainous area, it's kind of, it has a bit of a romantic, old-fashioned description. But actually, it's very different. Uh, it's very similar to Andalusia if you go to the southern yes, side Yes, you don't of, uh, really Spain. feel a break between northern Morocco and yeah. southern Spain. No, it's no, exactly. A, a brief interruption but, and then same yes, landscape. Exactly, yes, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. But what is, I mean, I think it's really interesting. I mean, it's not the most important thing, but language in this sense also matters. Like when, when Moroccans or others talk about the mountainous area, uh, there is a kind of, as someone recently wrote, there is a kind of, it's very similar to the description of Kurds in Turkey. Mm-hmm. They are also described as the people from the mountains, the mountainous people. So there is a kind of, let's say, normative intention to also wreck this image of a people that are in a way very tribal or mountainous or primitive primitive uh, backward etc so this is also i mean one of the reasons why i think there is also much less sort of understanding or maybe a bit surprised about the reef uprising like really they are doing that thing that is so urban and so modern and so if you know what i mean but it is very important what you're saying because of course the fact that it was a mountainous geography also meant that the leaders like Abdelkrim Khattabi and other anti-colonial resistance leaders were really making use of their local intimacy with the land and the knowledge of the different mountainous areas, which was really an advantage, militarily speaking. And, I mean, some people would even say that guerrilla warfare was actually invented. sort of invented by, or, by or sort of, you know, Khattabi. the experience was mm-hmm. something that uh, was very important for the Moroccan battles against the Spanish. So I think, I think that's a really interesting history that... Uh, Hopefully, whenever some kind of concessions uh, are going to be made by the government of Morocco, would also include a different approach to history, to teach uh, children in schools about this particular uh, chapter in their very recent history. So how is this legacy inspiring the protest movement today? I've been doing fieldwork in Morocco since 2013, approximately. And, I mean, I've been doing fieldwork there in order to understand what happens to a movement when it ceases to exist or when it starts to decline. And this was about the 20 February movement, which is very important because we will not be able to understand what is going on today if we don't understand what happened in 2011 and 12, right? So the big mass movements that erupted as part of the regional uprisings that were referred to as the 20 February movement had a particular impact. One of the things I found out in talking with activists and just, you know, observing the cultural expressions of demonstrations and activist movements is these kind of historical um, references. So 
I thought that it was so interesting to see people wearing uh, necklaces with uh, the silhouette of Abdul Karim al-Khattabi. And I thought it was also really interesting to see some people you know, chanting at demonstrations, the typical uh, demonstration chants where you refer to a person and then you say, this person, and that could be anyone, prisoner, someone, a martyr, where you basically say, uh, you just rest, we will continue the struggle. And sometimes they would mix that with Abdul Krim al-Khattabi mm-hmm. or Sa'id al-Nibhi or other characters from the recent history of people who have been part of a revolutionary movement. So I thought that it was really interesting to see that the moment that people go out and demonstrate and they come together and congregate and basically re-conquer uh, public uh, spaces, it also becomes a moment where these signals from the past are sort of making themselves be heard again. And I think it's something that is filled also with pride. You know, there's a lot of positive energy that comes from people hearing about these heroic experiences and and historic phenomena. And I think it's sometimes a mixture of pride and surprise. You know, really, did we are we part of that legacy? And it sort of allows also people to feel more confident. And I think what I try to understand, and when I wrote about my research, was that it was, a, in a way, it gave them stamina. The current activists who sometimes look around, left, right, up, down, and think, what are we doing? Where are we going? The awareness of there having been this long history before them of people who've also struggled and done amazing things is in a way giving them the stamina to continue in the current times. And what the difference between what is going on now in 2017 and late 2016 after the death of Mohsin Fikri is that what I signaled in 2013-14 in small pockets is happening on a large scale. So I think that is really interesting in terms of how the past and the sort of heroic history of the figure of Abdul Khattabi, but also the experience of the people from the Reef who've done things that were actually for the benefits eventually of the whole country are sort of coming back to haunt the current political uh, leaders who are trying to repress these memories because they know that once these memories are unleashed, it kind of also gives an example to people that the most amazing things are possible, you know, and that is, I think, something that is not only typical to Morocco. You see this uh, in in Greece, you see this in the U.S. with the, all the movements against Trump. The minute people understand that actually big change is possible once you unite and fight, because people have done it before you, then it becomes to be a, a, a worry, a source of, of worry for the ruling elites and, and class. And I think that Morocco at the moment is completely confused and not in tune with what is going on. And they can see that the past is hunting them. And it's not just the Krim al-Khattabi and the heroic stories, by the way. It's also the sad experiences and the losses and the experience of extreme, you know, violence that have occurred particularly 
in the Reef region under first Crown Prince and then King Hassan II. These experiences that are sort of very particular for al Husayma and the Reef at large have also been blacked out, have also been so erased. Maybe you can focus on the actual incident uh, yeah. of, of a few weeks or months, a couple of months ago, I think, where Mr. Fikri, uh, yeah. what happened to him, and how does this tie into this this history of neocolonialism, repression, yeah. etc.? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a combination of factors. There is, of course, a new, a different social context. So people communicate in different ways, right? So I think that is very important to acknowledge that the way people share information and the way certain things go viral in a certain way matters. Add to that the fact that you have also a new generation. But if you would please summarize for us exactly what happened for our listeners, this strong parallel of this story with what happened in Tunisia in 2011, the, the incident that provoked... Starbucks. Right, so, which, so these different factors matter in how, for instance, the events or tragedy in October was experienced. The tragedy in October, which wasn't actually a tragedy, is that one particular person, Mohsin Fikri, who had just gotten his fish uh, to go and sell off, was basically stopped by a policeman who wanted to be, to get his usual bribe in order to let him go, and that led to disagreement. And a lot of people know the story, but he was ev- eventually killed. And the symbolic way he was uh, killed matters in the sense that he was killed in a garbage truck. Yeah, so they repossessed his fish, and they threw it in the garbage, and he tried to recover it, and that's how he got crushed. Right, so he, he, I mean, it didn't really exactly happen that way. I mean, they didn't throw his fish in the garbage, but they took his fish, and him and his comrades went into the garbage truck and said, we will, this was kind of like a sit-in, like a strike, we will not leave until you give us back our uh, fish. Two of his uh, comrades uh, got out of the garbage truck, and uh, Mohsin stayed behind, and the police officer allegedly ordered the grinding machine to be activated, mm-hmm. which grinded Mohsin Fikri. So the event was, of course, terrible, and there were a lot of parallels with Bouazizi, that something, an individual person who was just trying to make a living, who was not even allowed dignity in the sense of surviving, and not even the dignity to die in the way that he died. Uh, but that experience happened in a time when this goes viral in a matter of minutes or hours. And it happens in a time when people are already on the verge. They are already fed up. They have had, as you started discussion with, decades, in a sense, of experience of being neglected and humiliated. Very recent experiences since 2011, in which a new generation of activists had been very actively involved in the protests only four or five years before. So there was an accumulation of both anger and frustration and experience and understanding how politics works. And I think that combination has ignited a different type of political resistance that has managed to continue for more than seven months. And this is unique. This is phenomenal because in Morocco, 
as probably in other countries as well, what you often would see is that anger and protest movements are easily or at least attempted to be co-opted. Co-opted either by, you know, doing false promises, giving them all kinds of new deals, or divide and rule, which is one strategy of political control that I think Morocco uh, is extremely well-versed in. But that did not succeed. And until now, what we see is that the movements have only grown and increased and gone way beyond the reef. This is the point we're at now. Give us a summary of what happened during or after the the start of the Arab Spring in Morocco, all the protests, how did that end up and how was that co-opted or attenuated that six years later we're still at square one? Well, we are not at square one. That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, what we have to really understand. We would not have seen this. I think it's a huge success what is happening now. If there had not been the experience of 2011. First of all, of course, just the experience of going out. And I think it sounds for a lot of people a blasé, but it really is important to understand what it means for people to congregate publicly and chant. I mean, it's a cliche now, but a lot of people would say we lost our fear. That happened in 2011, and that is something that is very hard to put back. And we've seen that in several countries, of course. So for a lot of people in Morocco, 2011 was crucial in the sense that it taught them that they could go out and express their grievances. So this is not any more unique or new or innovative. What uh, kind of concessions happened. did they gain by doing all the protests? Tell us a little bit how the Moroccan government, which you're saying is very clever, how it managed to channel all that energy into something more palatable. Yes, it's both, right? It's not only that it was co-opted. On the one hand, the government very clearly understood that they were part of a regional change. It was not just in Morocco. So they had the benefit, you could say, of seeing how things were evolving elsewhere. So they could see what not to do and what maybe to do better. So what they did was, of course, try to co-opt with promises for uh, a better democratic system. This in Morocco manifested itself in the very, very quick announcement of a referendum. The king gave a speech in which he kind of, in his own way, tried to do a better form of what Ben Ali did too late in Tunisia when he said, I understand you, I hear you. So what basically the king of Morocco did was, in his so-called king speech, he said, I acknowledge your grievances, and I'm going to do something extraordinary, which I never did before, and that is give you actually a right to vote on changing the constitution and democratize the country from within. And of course, this For a lot of activists, it didn't matter. They continued to mobilize and to say that this was something we should not take too serious, that we should push forward. But for a lot of people who were mobilized on the streets and who were not that keen on a kind of, you know, radical political push uh, without any guarantees, these offers were actually accepted. And so... Despite the fact that the media manipulated the debates and there was no actual honest debates about a yes or a no in the referendum, it was a sort of fait accompli, a lot of people actually did think that we should give it a chance. 
this is exactly what the Mahzen wanted, what the state wanted. It was to take out that energy from the movement. And it's understood that if you do that at a height of a movement, that you actually have lasting effect. So this was the first step. The second step was the elections. One of the side effects of that was that a major party, a major actor in the grassroots movements, Adil wal Ihsan, a sort of uh, Justice, people call Islamists, yeah, yes. political Islam, was at that time also withdrawing itself from the movement, the movement that was called the 20 February movement. Some people said that this was in order to make space for the new PGD party, which is also described as a kind of Islamist party, to join the elections. It was for the first time that the government, the king, allowed this Islamist-oriented party to join the elections. So it kind of killed two birds with one stone. It sort of weakened the movement because it led to the withdrawal of a major part of that movement, and it diverted a lot of attention and energy into the elections. So this happened in 2011 and into 2012. So at this the was the, the divide-and-conquer uh, tactics that you were but talking about. But at the about. same time, there were still protests, and I think that is really something that we should not underestimate. At the same time, there were still monthly protests. People were still going out in the streets, not in those huge masses, but at the same time, the political discontent was still continuing, and they were translated into different campaigns, even if they were not called anymore the 20 February movement. In 2012 and 2013, there were mass protests, there were mass sittings, but they were around concrete demands that came out of the same grievances of the movement. And that has been a non-stop lifeline. And I think a lot of people don't see that when they only focus on mass movements. They don't see that this lifeline has continued also in Morocco up until 2016. So what we see now is a combination of the old networks, of all of that that erupted in 2011 around what they call the Arab Spring or the Arab Uprisings and the 20 February movement, of people who already knew each other and who trusted each other and who had the experience of doing campaigning via social media, via street sittings, etc. Those experiences have accumulated and are now also being expressed in the street. So that's why I'm so keen on making that link between 2011 and now. I don't think it's something that was failed and now there's a second chance. So it was not entirely co-opted. We have two threads. We have this Absolutely. continuing resistance. The fact that they already tried the co-optation means that they can't try it now in the same way. You see what I mean? Yes. They've tried it. What hmm. did they manage to accomplish by letting this moderate Islamist party, the PJD, Party of uh, Justice and Development, accede to power. They had yeah. a coalition government, and they've been in power. Did anything change in Morocco? Well, that's the thing. Some political scientists would probably tell us, if you let the opposition govern, you kind of get a kind of stability. 
and then you would get a new status quo. But what we've seen is that the opposition was actually not governing. It was a kind of shadow cabinet. A lot of people were joking about the fact that for every minister for the opposition, there was a shadow minister that was appointed directly by the king. I mean, there's one story whereby the American uh, was a delegation, uh, Clinton, I think, herself came to Morocco. And the first person she met was not the official minister, but the shadow minister appointed by the king. I mean, this is just an anecdote to show that, in effect, the democratic experience that was part of this cooptation, they didn't even try that hard to play it out as convincing as possible. But that experience has shown that change does not come from within, that as long as the system remains the way it is, the forces of power are unchanged, the rule of law is unchanged. In fact, a lot of people actually witnessed and experienced with shock that some of the changes that came after the experience of the Arab uprising and the 20 February movement regressed. Some of the rights and laws actually became worse than they were before. So that whole experience, I think, is very interesting because it shows that when another moment happens a little later, the government is out of its options. The tricks are all used. And so now they tried to co-opt by sending officials to al Husayma to talk with the people. No one cared. They were basically booed out of the city. And this is really interesting. So behind the window dressing of a new government, uh, new faces, a new prime minister, not much that was fundamental seems to have changed. Was there any talk or pretense of trying to fix some of the fundamental issues of social justice in Morocco at the hands of this purported new government? Yes, there's always been talk. There's no lack of talk. And there are, for instance, also a lot of hard numbers. There would be those who would come out with economic reports and say that the GDP went up, which is true. But the problem is it went up in tandem with an increase in property. So what we saw was that actually the inequality has increased. Mm. So even though the infrastructure in this place or the new sector in that place have materialized, that actually it is not in the benefit of ordinary people. And I think that is very important to understand why people in the Reef are making these very concrete claims. So they've also learned, I think, from the recent years to not be abstract in your demands, because then the government can co-opt and come with kind of camouflage and cosmetics. But they come with very concrete demands, such as we want a hospital, we want a university, mm. we want the roads to be fixed. And I think this is extremely smart and wise, because it doesn't allow then the political class to buy them off with all kinds of void and empty discourse. But either yes, you do it, or no, you don't, then we will continue to resist. So that's kind of the limbo the Moroccan government and the Mahzen is finding itself in at the moment. After the death of Hassan II, the previous king, mm. in 1999, there was a lot of excitement about mm. his son, the new king, Mohammed VI, at least paying lip service, if not more than that, to all kinds of social progress among those, the status of women. He yeah. came up with a famous family code called the Mudawana that really mm. 
was trying to advance things. What have we seen, if anything, in terms of progress for women's rights? I think that's really interesting because we should take this serious. I mean, I know that at moments of cynicism, we can say, oh, it was all faked. It didn't mean anything. But actually, it was meaningful. I think the late 1990s was a period, uh, the king has not died in 1999. Just before that, they had already established these changes. They knew that there was a new era coming up and that the way that the king, the Hassan was leading the country was inevitably going to lead to crisis. So there was already this awareness, which also was, by the way, happening across the world after the Cold War. There was a new understanding of a sort of neoliberal democracy type approach, even among dictatorships. We saw this also in Syria, in other countries, in Jordan, who all, by the way, saw new kings and new presidents, right? It was sort of the same period. Yes, Abdullah yes. in mm. Jordan, Hassan in Morocco, Habib uh, al-Assad in Syria. So it was the period also of important new sort of investments, ICT sector, media sector, and also things like women's rights. But what we should not forget is that in Morocco there has been a long history of grassroots organizing and civil society around different rights, including women's rights. So actually, my view is that these different confluences came together. They actually provided also a ready-made need, demand for change at the moment when it was really necessary for the state to change its attire, so to speak, to introduce to the world a modern country with a modern young king. And this is indeed what happened. He was hailed as the cool king. I don't know if you've ever seen the cover of the Times magazine. It was the cover with the new king, and the title was The Cool King. So with every story about the new monarch, we would hear stories about women's rights and mudawana. And I think it doesn't do justice to a lot of the women who have been fighting for these rights to take women's position out of the Sharia law and into the main legal framework. Because the family law is the only part of the law that is under the Sharia law. So the whole point about the mudawana was to actually basically, to put it very crudely, secularize that part of the legal system. So it was in a way beneficial for the regime to have a new image around liberal, modern topics, but it was also something that was already being fought for by the same women who, by the way, who fought for these issues, who only a few years before that were harassed or imprisoned over the same issues. So yes, some important changes were taking place. Also in the media sector, journalists who were experimenting, really fascinating uh, experiences. This is the period, by the way, that produced journalists like Ali Nuzla that led to experiments with magazines like Telkel, like yes. Lakum later. This was that period of potentiality, yes. but that didn't last. It didn't last long for different reasons, but also it wasn't enough. At some point, people were going to say, okay, symbolism is good, but it's actually not enough. We want real change. We have a very rotten system from very deep within that produces inequality and that harms us, and that needs to be fixed. What concrete measures have we seen since 1999 that have improved a lot of women in Morocco? I mean, of course, it's a very slow process for everyone who has family or maybe even herself experienced 
legally speaking, officially speaking, there have been improvements, for instance, in the right to divorce or that the polygamy has been restrained. But we know that there is an enormous informal Inertia, dynamic. Inertia and resistance to it. Yeah, yeah and it's not just a resistance, but it's, I mean, on the local level, the qaid or the, the local sort of judge or whatever, it has a lot of power. So, I mean, you can, as a woman, say that the law is on my side, but there are all these different dynamics and power struggles on different levels that the state has almost nothing to do with that continues. But, I mean, there has been progress. The only thing I want to say is, I don't think this progress has come because of the state. I really think it has largely come despite of the state. Mm. But how about uh, the rights of the Amazir people to mm. speak their own language, mm. to have their language recognized as a national language? Morocco, just like Algeria, perhaps even more so, probably has a majority of, or a very, very large minority of Berber speakers. In Algeria, we no longer like to say Berber versus Arab. It's really... Arab speakers versus Berber speakers. Mm. A lot of people speak both. What kind of uh, progress has been made on that front? So I think this is really interesting because what... So the Mudawana is one topic or label you can uh, hear a lot. The other is the rights of the Mazirin and that the new king has acknowledged their rights and respected them and not criminalized anymore, Amazigh culture and language. So on the one hand, that's true. On the other hand, we, we, we now, 20 years later, realize actually it doesn't really matter. What we've seen is that there are news programs added to the existing news programs in Arabic in three Amazigh languages, but they say the same state propaganda. And that's the joke, right? right? So, I mean, when I'm in Morocco, I'm listening to the news and it's like, oh, wow, it's in Tmezicht. and But it's the same news about the king meeting this ambassador, going that place, doing this. So I think we've also come to a point where all these kind of minority issues and rights that are sort of cosmetic, but also very on the level of politics of representation, don't feel people's bellies. They don't actually bring concrete change. And what we see now is that the recent protests are showing that in the most extravagant way. I mean, the beating up of protesters and then using the most racist terms against Imazir and showing the real face of the state, but also the very recent example, which is, I think, extremely symbolic is a mother of one of the prisoners who went to visit her son, who was arrested, basically kidnapped, and put into this one of those notorious prisons in uh, Casablanca called Abkhazia. She was not allowed to talk with her child in Tmezicht. People are only allowed to talk in Arabic to the prisoners. So it just tells you something about the extent of, or rather the difference between symbolic politics and actual politics based on justice. So a lot of these grievances about the discrimination and racism against Imazirin are coming to the surface, and a lot of Moroccans don't understand it. 
I think they genuinely think you had your rights. What's the problem? We had a new king and you're wealthy. What's your problem? I think the recent weeks have actually also, people have been held a mirror in front of them to say, well, actually, no, this is actually what is happening in terms of our Imazilan. And they are not minority, as you said. Yeah, I mean, if anything, they're probably the majority when you count I, this region plus that region plus this mountain. You yeah, know, we, probably we don't the, know. We don't know. We don't know because, what, how, yeah. What does it matter? If there would be some DNA uh, test, probably. Right, there's no such thing anymore. We're all mixed slave. We don't it's know. It's a linguistic it issue. And to bring back the discussion uh, to what we started talking about, the Reef Mountains happen to be a Berber in Maziran region. That's also very symbolic that these people who have a legacy of resistance have also traditionally been at the bottom of society, the mountain people, and they speak their own language, which is Tamazir. But, you know, my origin is from there. We all tend to sort of bend the stick the other way. So when people tell me about all these things, about Amazir and we Amazir, I tend to actually then shift gear and say, but, you know, in the south, we also have Amazir. Yes. They are the Shluh. They yes. also live in mountainous areas. Those are the Atlas Mountains. They've also fought very brave struggles in the here and now. They are actually economically... I think even worse off than the North. And the whole intention of the protests now is to connect these different regions and people and to say that what is happening in the reef is basically symbolic for what is happening in the whole country. And we can all be heroes. We can be tomorrow's Abdelkrim Lakhtabis. doesn't have to come from the North. It can also come from the South or from Gaza or from Rabat. And I think that's the moment we are in now. We're seeing al Husayma and the reef becoming symptomatic, I think, for the country in terms of its suffering, but also a metaphor in terms of its resisting. We'll bring you the second part of our interview with Professor Aurak after a music break. We spoke with her following the June 26th protest in the city of al Husayma in Morocco's northern reef region. For a status, I am Malihir Azazan. Oh, 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 
26, during the eight holiday at the end of Ramadan, around 50 protesters were arrested following violent clashes with Moroccan police in the northern city of Al Husayma in Morocco's northern reef region. Khalil Bendib picked up his conversation with Dr. Awraq, where he left it last week, about the latest protests in Morocco and what this means for the democracy movement in that country. Miriam Aura, welcome back to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's great to have you with us again. Thank you. Things are heating up in Morocco as we speak. People have been demonstrating, and the police now has left any pretense of kid gloves behind, and they're assaulting people, beating them up, arresting them. More than 50 people were arrested. Tell us more of what's going on right now. Yes, you're right. Velvet uh, gloves have gone off, and I think what's really symbolic is the shock about the uh, level of violence on Eid al-Fitr, on the celebration of Eid after Ramadan. People went out in Al-Husayma in a peaceful demonstration, and on Eid al-Fitr was one of the most violent days, basically. And And that's supposed to be a great celebration. Eid is like uh, the equivalent of Christmas in this country. Exactly. And a lot of the commentaries were sort of in that line, like the lovely day of the year shed with blood. So it's kind of the lowest point I think we've seen so far. We've seen a wavering approach of the government, sort of good cop, bad cop approach since late May when the protests kicked off. But the phase we're in now, basically since last week, is really extremely violent. The police have been arresting people left and right. They still haven't released Mr. Zivzafi, whose arrest and detention is a big part of these demonstrations. The king, he's made some noises about being unhappy with the situation. Tell us what the king's reaction has been. Yeah, so that's really interesting because a lot of people are basically saying that it's part of the uh, strategy of the Mahzen that when... When you say the Mahzen, you mean the state, the yeah, monarchy. So the reference to the state of Morocco, which is both negative and neutral reference. Right that one of the ways to sort of 
throw sand in the eyes of critics and people is to use this sense of disappointment by the king. So there was this idea that the king himself was disappointed in the politicians and the law enforcement in how they dealt with the situation during the protest. And actually, nobody really takes that serious. I mean, nothing can be done in terms of the decisions around police responses, the legal cases, etc., without some kind of consent from the king. It's an interesting strategy to come out and say, oh, I have no idea what's going on. This is all going on behind my control. But, I mean, it's not really taken serious. He actually dangled the carrot. He said, well, I'm disappointed that some of the developmental projects in that region have not been carried out. But he didn't talk about the fate of the prisoners, the people who are Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, the developmental projects, I mean, it's also... Yeah, it's a little bit of a joke. Those who are, you know, looked into this and investigated these matters will tell you the major corporations that are in control of these large development projects, particularly in the port cities, are co-owned by the king. I mean, if anyone knows everything, then it's him and his financial advisors. So this is an interesting strategy that partly works. I mean, a lot of people would say, It's not the fault of the king. He doesn't know what's going on. We should give him a chance. So it kind of partly works, this discourse. Some people were shocked at the way women are being treated in these demonstrations. No, that's really interesting because there's, of course, this sort of general idea of Morocco in sort of similar to Jordan as countries where monarchies have tried to at least do something very progressive with regards to women's rights in Morocco, the Mudawana. So there is this idea that the reign of Mohammed VI is also a reign of progressive policies and that he himself personally has made an effort in guaranteeing women's rights. So it's kind of branding also itself as a champion of women's rights in the international community. And what we see now is that after a lot of talk and text about women's rights in the sort of abstract sense, we see that on the streets there really is no difference between the baton used against men or women. And the number of people that have been arrested uh, include a lot of women. The so-called leaders of the movement in Al-Husayma include women. Celia is arrested not long after Zafzafi was arrested. She's the one who basically took over when he was arrested. Nawal bin Isa, a woman, mother of four from Al-Husayma, was arrested and intimidated as well. So I think this recent chapter in Moroccan political history has really given us the most concrete example of the difference between women's rights and women emancipation as rhetoric and women's rights and women emancipation as practice. Give us some more examples of this gap between what the law ostensibly lays out and says are women's rights and in practical life what's still not happening. Right. So just to offer a little bit of context, these discussions about women's rights, or often summarized as mudawana, are debates that have particularly uh, increased 
since the current king took over the throne from his father, so in the late 1990s, early 2000s. So Madamwana is the name of this new law uh, concerning family law and women's rights. Yeah, so it's not exactly new, and that's really interesting. This has been part of the feminist and women's movement since decolonization. 1956. 56, yes, mm. and it was already after, the day after, basically, independence, which was a negotiated independence. Women went to the street because the the family law, which is what the Mudawan actually is, family law is what really, I mean, impacts women's lives very intensely in terms of marriage, in terms of motherhood, etc., was a big disappointment. So in the sort of post-colonial movement, uh, there already was a lot of bottom-up organizing by women's groups. And this has been beautifully written and commented about by the late uh, Fatima Mernisi, but also Fatima Sadiqi, who wrote and studied about this. So the Mudawana has been an issue that has been part of political life for much longer, but at the end of Hassan Tani, the king's, current king's father's reign, the debates were brewing again. And so one of the things the new king did as part of his new sort of entrance as the progressive king was a sort of update or redressing of the Mudawana, but also of human rights issues and media law, etc. So there was a series of issues that were really important to sort of create and craft this image of the new progressive king. And I have to say, on the level of representation, there really were changes. So I'm not being cynical and saying, well, women are being beaten up, so there was no change. Actually, on the level of representation, you just remember, I don't know if you remember, but when the king married, it was historical. It was for the first time in the history of Morocco, that the wife of the king appeared publicly, Mm. and she was unveiled. So on the level of representation, there really were a number of interesting uh, changes. Symbolically. Symbolically, yes. And of course, this brings political weight as well. You know, it helps those women who are, don't want to veil or want to work or be publicly active like the king's wife, it gives them legitimacy. So it's not unimportant. But like a lot of critics already said about these women's rights programs, for whom there is this huge difference, which we have also seen and already discussed in terms of current women's rights and feminist movements in other parts of the world, where there are also the program and the interest of a particular class of society. The overwhelming majority of Morocco, and we tend to forget that in our academic offices or capital cities, the overwhelming majority is uh, lower middle class, lower class or middle class and probably even poor. They are outside the law. They have no rights. Why is that? Why are they outside the law? Uh, I don't think it's very unique to Morocco. We can see this also. If we look, I was just watching something on TV about a young mother in the United States who's been facing a lot of financial problems and being traced by the system. I mean, when you are poor and you don't have legal representation or you're not valid, uh, you're a liability, often a lot of the privileges are not there for you. And so in these cases in Morocco, what you see is that, for instance, women from working classes or poor poor working classes actually they don't have the same rights that are there in the Mudawana that is officially already for them, such as divorce. We know a lot of women who are 
not able to divorce from their husbands, even though the new so-called new mudawana allows that because you can get away with a lot of things in Morocco through bribery, through intimidation, etc. So this is just one example of why power and legitimacy are not equally distributed. And when you have a society that has such high levels of inequality, where you have a large, large section that is on the very bottom, you will see that at some point these debates don't impress a lot of people. But as you said, these last two weeks, two or three weeks, were a really very violent mirror in our face of what the role of women really entails once they decide to raise their voice and go to the streets. And how were all these women who over 60 years have been courageously activating, doing all they could to make things better for their fellow Moroccan women, how were they treated generally by the government? So I think what is interesting also here is, again, a bit of context in the sense that the women's movements and other progressive uh, movements for change, for equality, have traditionally been part of what we can call a left progressive politics. And what is important to remember is that, in this case, feminist movements and other groups have been also part of the left in Morocco that were crushed in the 60s and 70s and until the 80s. So in the so-called years of lead, Ayam al-Rasas under King Hassan II, you know, the sort of institutional or organizational infrastructure of all these organizations were largely crushed. People were arrested, killed, tortured terribly. There were some iconic examples of women leaders like Saida Nibhi was a radical leftist who died in a hunger strike in prison and who is now being, by the way, remembered. So it's also really interesting to look now carefully into the sort of images of the protests we've seen very recently. I've seen women carrying posters, and men, by the way, of Sa'id al-Nabhi. So there's also this kind of moment where also these women and men from the recent past are being are being remembered, are being honored. So this context is really important to understand how difficult it was for groups to survive and to continue And in that light, I think it's quite extraordinary that they actually did, to a large extent, continue and survive the human rights organizations, the women's organizations, etc. So I think this is really also important to remember that what we see now is despite the attempts to undermine the histories and the legacies of these movements and groups. Speaking of the terrible repression that went on for the better part of four decades under the previous king, mm. who was known worldwide for his terrible uh, dictatorial, the, the way he treated his people, torturing, killing, disappearing people. One of the most, if not the most famous example was that of uh, Bambarka, Mehdi mm. Bambarka, mm. who was literally disappeared. Mm -hmm. And to this day, uh, nobody's clearly exactly sure what happened to him, where he ended up. I had the pleasure of interviewing his son a few years ago. Right, wow. And yeah, yeah it was fantastic to speak yeah. with him. Yeah. Um, I was pleasantly surprised, I must say, back in 20, 2005, I was in Morocco visiting 
to see a magazine on sale in the streets uh, speaking about the affair Bambarka, mm -hmm. what happened. Mm -hmm. I was quite surprised because I thought well, yeah. it must yeah. still be a big taboo. Yeah. How was that today spoken about, remembered in Morocco? When did you say you were there? I was there in 2005. Right. So that's really interesting because so I've been looking into these periods to basically better understand what happened because there's this idea that there has been a lot of improvement and then there's this sense of we're going back to the years of lead. So I've been looking into this and I found that actually it's exactly the period you're mentioning is when the decline started. started. So basically mm -hmm. since the 2000s, there was this window of opportunity with a new king and all these promises, you know, this reconciliation uh, committee that would look into the terrible things Hassan II did, testimonies to forget and forget and move on, these women rights, human rights, ratification of all kinds of international agreements, and a new type of press engagement. So this is the period where we, for instance, saw also, maybe that's one of the magazines you saw, but this was the period that you saw journalists like Ali Nuzla, Ali Marabot, Ahmed bin Shemsi. Yes, it was right, um, I think it was right before uh, we started right. hearing about these cases. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's like Telkel, Lakum, etc. would come up with really interesting counter-hegemonic narratives about the years of lead, but also, I think, you know, stories about uh, prisoners in Tesmamert, Bimberka, one of them. So it's really interesting that actually, because of that window of opportunity, those few years, it's almost as if a new generation of journalists and activists sort of smelled the opportunity and wanted to uh, push forward. And that is when the backlash started. This is the period when more and more journals were being closed and journalists were writing those kind of stories and doing interviews with families of, of ex-prisoners or martyrs were getting extraordinary high fines, which was a sort of democratic way to silence them. So not anymore torture them to death, but give them fines of millions of dirhams so that they cannot continue their uh, work anymore. So that's really interesting because it was a brief period where we began to learn about this part of history that only the radical left would know about, such as the disappearance of Benbarka. It was also for me a period to rediscover those stories and to find out. It's shock. I don't know if you discussed that with his son, but to also find out in shock how much support there still was for the Moroccan regime by his international allies. So Ben Barka's disappearance and assassination would not have happened without the French oh, collaboration. Not just French, but apparently British, Israeli, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, US. Yeah. Uh, it was like they yeah. all ganged up on yeah. the poor Mehdi Ben Barka. Yes, yes. I mean, you see this also in other cases where, on the one hand, we're being told by the liberal democracies in the West that's great that their Arab uprisings have shown that they're finally sort of democratizing themselves. But actually, there was a very concrete reason why they were not able to, because they were actually receiving, these dictators were receiving all this support. And this is also the case now under 
the new, I don't know why we're still using the term new, I think for a large group of activists, it is the only king they've ever known. It just shows how old we are. But Mohammed VI, it's also clear, I am very, very curious why there hasn't been more media exposure about what's happened in the past weeks, because this is epic, what's happening. This is groundbreaking. This is a historical chapter in the political consciousness of the people. And yet, I still have to see, you know, the number of articles that we would have seen in the international, at least in the Anglophone press about what's happening. I think it has to do with the sort of, you know, powerful allies of the king. Very strong alliance that was reciprocated. Morocco, when I was growing up in Algeria, was notorious, and I don't mean the country, I mean the government, the the state, was notorious for, uh, it was a poster boy for a neo-colonialist regime. It was actively complicit in the disappearance and murder of Lumumba, among other horrible things that they helped make happen, let alone disappearance, torture probably, and murder of Mahdi Bambarka, who was a great symbol of third world independence, let alone selling out their own Jewish citizens to Israel, and on and on. The complicity Mm -hmm. has been astounding. But that's probably why Morocco, yeah. just like Jordan, get a pass with the Western media. Yeah. They're the model students. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny that you and I are talking about this because uh, it's partly your fault. I mean, it's <laughs> interesting, but the reason why the decolonization process has happened in a certain way for Morocco was, and this is what all international actors agreed, even the inter-imperial competitors. So the French were competing with the Spanish, the Americans were also. What they all agreed about was we do not want another Algeria. So Algeria was the example of what none of them wanted. Meaning the insurrection, the independence uh, movement and the war. The revolution, the the uh, the anti-colonial resistance, which was kind of like it was a testimony of the power and the will of a people, but it also had very clear progressive connotations. Not that it remained. I think that Algeria declined and became a dictatorship very soon after, but yes. at least at that moment, it was an example for the whole third world at that time, third world, but also for radical youth movements in Europe. And you cannot understand, for instance, the student uprisings in France in the 60s without understanding Algeria. So it was clear that Morocco, they could not afford having a neighboring country of Algeria also seeing the same inclinations. It would become a kind of domino effect. And so that is why very quickly they were given independence in a sort of smooth transition in their view. I mean, Morocco was, yeah. Yes, as I said, in their view. That's what the Algerians always snicker about. They say the Moroccans didn't really have to fight for the independence, which is not true, because there was exactly, previous... Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so there's competing histories, and we talked about it, I think, last yeah. time, also yeah. about there's a chapter in this history that has, of course, been overwritten, and this explains the reef, the northern region's grief. It's exactly that period of 58, 59, when people were saying, no, we don't want this kind of independence, it's not really independence, and wanted to continue to fight for their rights and then being crushed by the new monarchy. That part of that history of the 50s explains, of course, the inherited grievances and hate that you still see being expressed today on the streets of Morocco. 
and to link the history of neocolonialism with what's going on today, mm. it's interesting that you mentioned in a previous interview that many of the fishing rights that mm. would rightfully belong to the Moroccans, the average Moroccan fishermen, mm. have actually been sold off to foreign companies. Tell us, yeah. what's that about? If anyone wants to find this concrete definition of what neocolonialism is, I think Morocco is an excellent example. You know, it's a kind of independence whereby many of the material benefits of pre-independence have remained for the previous colonizers. So France, Spain are very close to the Moroccan states and it's not just because they go way back a long time, but it's really to do with the material interests in the country. So the fishery, I mean, it's just incredible. I I won't bore you with the details, but it's actually not very different from agriculture, where the overwhelming majority that is produced and is actually there swimming is not for domestic use. It's not to feed the hungry people in Morocco. It's for these international corporations. But they get, of course, the Moroccan companies get a share. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So it's not some kind of colonial exploitation of the natural resources of Morocco. It's a very capitalist relationship between the capitalist class of Morocco and these international companies and corporations. This is why it's sustainable. If there wasn't an interest for a certain small, very elite group in Morocco, this would not have happened. And we see it where in cases that are politically easier to exploit for the Moroccan regime and framing it as interference from the West, it's usually cases that they don't have an interest in, that they don't benefit from. Then they will come with this kind of nostalgic image of we are not independent, we're being used. It's all the cases where they do have an interest, yet cases that are directly relevant for independence in the actual sense of the word, that you can sustain yourself, we don't hear them. And so fishery, agriculture, but also other natural sources like phosphate that are very enriching, but don't benefit most of the local domestic consumers uh, are in the hands of international corporations. That is why the case of Martin Fikri in October was so symbolic. That is why it was so symbolic. It wasn't just the humiliation of someone like Mohsin Fikri and the idea of the Mohamed Bouazizi of Morocco, but also the fact that it sort of brought to light the reality behind the ban to fishing for people like him. Yes, and another shock to me, even though I know about Morocco, I lived the first six years of my life there. Right. Where did you live? <laughs> but in, uh, in Rabat, in the capital right. city. Yeah. And back then, it was the previous, previous king. It was the grandfather, Mohammed II. Mm. And I was a kid. I loved that one. He seemed to be very popular among the population. Mm. So I went back in 2005 to a mm. place in Morocco where I don't have any friends or relatives. Mm. And so I had to do something I never do usually. I took a tour, bus tour of the area between Marrakesh and uh, Mogador, Sawira. Mm -hmm. And I was not pleased to hear that the tour guide was just plainly telling us without any apparent malice or apparent irony 
that you see from here all the way to the horizon, those hills a few miles from here, that belongs to the king, all this agricultural land. On the other side, on the left-hand side, that belongs to the king's brother. And over there is the... I was thinking, what's left for the... <laughs> yes. No wonder there's so many people starving. Yes. Literally, you see people, beggars in Morocco, it just breaks my heart to see people yes. really yes. worried about their livelihood today, yes. tomorrow. Yes. Will they eat? Yeah, and this is, I think, the the awareness of this is uh, now in triple tempo coming up. So there's been years and years and years of keeping people, you know, ignorant but in the historical timeline, 20 years is nothing. So in the last 15, 20 years, we've seen a change in terms of access to media because of new infrastructures uh, like the Internet, but also, as I said, this window of opportunity, the early 2000s until mid-2000s. So the awareness about it is growing. And so when you have moments of rupture, like now, rupture because of an unnecessary and very symbolic killing or death or protests like in al Husayma, these new awarenesses, this consciousness is being shared in multifold. And this idea that you can just say, oh, that's the king's, that's his brother's, that self-evident tone of it is disappearing. And that's why the regime is so scared because they know the potential threat of masses coming to these conclusions, you know, when they say, actually, no, I reject your logic. Your logic does not make sense. So on that same tour from that same bus on the left-hand side, on the hillside, I see the words Allah al-Watan al-Malik, no less. Three words paired together, three words saying God, the homeland, and the king, all three on the same level which again shocked me, even knowing what I know about Morocco. Tell us what implications this holy trinity of sorts conferring upon the king's semi-divine status. Tell us what that means for the status quo that we've seen for so long. I think that's a very important question, and I don't know how much I should restrain myself. It's one of those red lines. There's three red lines in Morocco. They say that you don't go into too much the Sahara, the legitimacy of the monarchy and religion. So the media uh, are not supposed to touch those three red lines. They, well, that's, I mean, yeah. The king, the, the, Islam, the, politic- right, yeah. the religious, the monarchy, and the homeland, you know, Sahara having yeah. come to symbolize Yeah, that. and of course they do sometimes. And that's why they're arrested, and their lives are made miserable, and that's why people like Ali Nuzla has to go to jail, and people like Ben Shamshi go away, they whatever, live in America or something. I mean, this is why these ruptures occur, because the red lines are actually a good example of what I just said before in very sort of unclear way. The consciousness of people raising to a certain point where they reject a logic where they say, wait a minute, what's the logic? Why can't we discuss that? I don't see why you're saying one plus one is three. I really think that it's two. So these red line areas belong to this changing, shifting consciousness. And I think the monarchy is a difficult one because it overlaps with religion. The kind of arenas that overlap, that synchronize, are the most difficult ones to undo. So when you have 
a monarchy that is saying that they are basically it's the father of the people, it's equal to Allah and to the Watan. And they descend, uh, supposedly descended from, from no exactly, less than the Prophet himself. Exactly, mm. exactly, exactly. So when it's that, plus, it's not just al-Malik, it's al-Amir al-Mu'minin. And the commander of the faithful. The commander of which the means, in a way, the leader of all Muslims, not just Moroccans. Yeah, well, they're, <laughs> they're, meanwhile, humble enough to understand that there's not going to be many people listening to this part besides those in Morocco. But this has a very powerful implications for people who are mu'minin, you know, who people are who are believing. Believers. They are, I know a lot of Moroccans who are devout and they want to be good Muslims. And if you're being told that that equals being faithful to the king because he is a descendant of that religion, then it's going to be really difficult for those who disagree with the policies and the acts that are legitimate or practiced by that very ruler, it's going to be hard to convince people of that if it means that you're telling them at the same time to reject this authority, which is, I think, why activists have been avoiding that, and very rightfully so. And this is what you've seen when we discussed the last time why it mattered that the current wave of protests have had the experience of the wave of protests in 2011 and 12, this is a concrete example. Those experiences four or five years ago showed it's not going to help you to talk about things like the kingdom and the monarchy. It's much more concrete and useful if you discuss social economic issues and political rights within the system of the Moroccan government or the Muslim. And um, that is now being practiced as well. Among the Islamists, those who potentially might be holier than thou, are there any who openly question the origins of this monarchy that say, wait a minute, yes. that's not in the Quran anywhere or in the Sunnah or anything. <laughs> I mean, right. are there yes. those who dare to do that? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's why the Adil wal-Ihsan is just an important movement. Justice mass, and development. Huh? Yes. yes. And it's a mass, mass movement that, unlike the PJD, who had been in the government since 2012, the PGD, the Justice and Development Party. So Adil Wal-Hassan is a Justice and Charity Party or Justice movement? Justice and Charity, movement. okay, that's the other one that also has yes. justice in it, yes. Yes, and the PGD, the political party that joined the elections, is the Justice and Development Party mm-hmm. that was led by Adil, Adil Ila bin Kiran. Yes. They are very pro-monarchy, and that's the only also reason why they were allowed to even participate in the elections. But Al-Adil Wal-Ihsan, the Justice and Charity Movement, does not, and actually has been quite... Sheikh Yassin, who passed away a few years ago, was one of the sort of leaders of the movement, charismatic leaders, has always been very critical and doesn't actually acknowledge this lineage and this claim to religious power. So there is tension. You can say that there is tension. And I was also surprised and was interested to see in the last major protest march in Rabat two weeks ago, I think, in light of what happens in the Reef, and solidarity with the Hirak and the Reef, they also went out, they mobilized. So thanks to their mobilization, the march was gigantic. It was, you know, hundreds and thousands of people. 
But I think I'd like to be careful also in this and then say they are also Moroccans. They are also people. And they also have the right to go out and claim and disagree with the government, with the king, uh, with other uh, participants in the movement. It's part of the organic coalition that is on the street now. But yes, this link between religion and governmentality has proven to be very unique, I think, to Morocco. So rather than portrays of Moroccan as the exception, the Moroccan exception, because of this exceptionally fine or good way of ruling the people that has led to less violence, etc., as, you know, Washington Post and others like to see it. It has much more to do with this, as you call it, a holy... Holy alliance. Holy uh, alliance. So I think that's why I'm so incredibly in awe I'm proud, if I dare to use a slight reference to some kind of chauvinistic sentiment, uh, of the people of Morocco. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's been amazing videos of thousands of people going out and chanting, playing with the words that are reserved for the king, Aash oh, and Malik. king uh, has lived. Uh, now it's turned for, for the people. Yes. It, wow. Incredible, and you hear thousands of people chanting that men, women, old, young, Sharif, Sharif, and it's instead of you know, yeah. long live, long live the reef instead of long live the king, yes, mm. yes, long and live the people. Symbolic, very, very there were symbolic. two very daring attempts in the 70s, if I remember correctly, mm. it was in 71, 73, mm. or two consecutive years. When the king, the dynasty almost ended, there are two attempts on the yeah. life of the king. It's an incredibly resilient monarchy. It's been there seemingly forever, and yeah, it's I mean, hard the, when yeah. you have a majority of the people really in economic hardship, not to mm. say worse than that. You wonder how long this will go on. Exactly, exactly. You, you mentioned yeah. last week, and we can finish with this question, you mentioned how Yes, GDP is growing in Morocco, mm. but unfortunately so is inequality, just like here in the USA and so many other places, but in Morocco it's quite dramatic. Is poverty itself growing? Is there a percentage of poor people mm. is growing, or is there just the same basic percentage of people completely left behind getting worse? Mm. No, I think it's increasing, and what you see is it's changing the type of has and has not that we are used to are also changing. It's kind of like what I think you in America call it the working poor. What you see is like a kind of poverty that is still wrapped within this ideological fantasy of, you know, land of opportunity. As long as you work hard, you can make it, but in the meantime, actually being very poor. And this is a recipe for, of course, social unrest. So yes, inequality has increased, and it's because exploitation has increased and those cannot be divorced the incredible investments in Morocco big projects if you go to Tangier or other port cities enormous ports 
Morocco wants to be, and I'm sure it can actually be, the biggest port of the region. It already is of Africa. It's competing on that level. You're talking here about a very different level of economic development, and they go hand in hand with exploitation and repression of people. And that is really, I don't know if we can end with that, because I think it's really important to bring also back the political economy. During my time in the last few years, some of the most fierce protests I've witnessed and been to, and backlash in 2014 against the so-called April 6th group, young activists, normal people who went out to protest for economic rights. Those were receiving the harshest beatings. Women who went out to protest in Tangier for union rights were receiving really harsh treatment. So what you see is all these developments and investments and this increasing exploitation is also leading to much more protest and anger. And that is an area of protest that the government is most fearful of. That's why it's interesting to see in the last few weeks where, again, the political is synchronizing with the economic. The political protests in the reef also led to economic protests in the sense of general strikes and the like. And this, I think, is something we need to keep in mind and our eyes on because this is a country that is developing an extremely fast pace and that cannot go well. Mariam Aura is a Moroccan anthropologist and activist based in the UK. She teaches at the University of Westminster in London, and she's writing a book on February 20th movement in Morocco. For a status, I am Malihe Razazan, and thanks for listening.